0: Well good morning and welcome everybody to Encounter Church. My name is Dirk. I'm the lead pastor here and I'm also the guy who was supposed to do the next steps here this morning that our worship director Zach had a chance to do because I got a little chatty outside on the front door coming in and I missed my cue. Can we give Zach a little round of applause right now? He was in no way prepared to do that but just crushed it. Thank you Zach. Hey, we are, in, uh, we are in part two of a series right now called God Is Not. And in case you weren't with us last week over the holiday weekend for the opening of, uh, of the brand new series, I just kind of want to give like a little overview uh, to see what we're doing here, why this series is going to be so important, and, uh, and kind of the why behind it all. The idea of God Is Not is that uh, so often what happens is that I have an opportunity and I sit down across the table or maybe, maybe across the coffee table in somebody's living room in, in your living room maybe and you're going through something. Something just happened. It's like the ground just dropped out of wherever you are. And it's not so much about that thing but it's just about like this crisis of faith that that thing triggers. And sometimes, oftentimes it's the case that the crisis of faith occurs because somewhere embedded within all of that is a misunderstanding or misassumption about who God is. And it's very difficult for, for my work in that moment to try to like identify what that, what that misunderstanding of God is and to try to like weed that out right there. So I thought, hey, what's better to do is well ahead of that time, hopefully, prayerfully, while you're maybe not in the valley or in the wilderness point this morning, what we can do is we can start addressing some of these things that some of these elements or beliefs that god is not so that way so that way when you find out firsthand that god isn't any of those things hopefully it doesn't like trigger this crisis of faith this series could save your faith and so last week we took a look and we said remember god is not and we said god is not on Demand. God is not like a microwave God that the central character of the Bible isn't me. It isn't even the, the characters in the Bible. The central person in the Bible is none other than God Himself. Last week we said that that God doesn't exist to serve us. We exist to serve God. We had Cal up here doing the pottery the whole time out of Jeremiah, and we said, remember, remember, he is the potter, we are the clay, and it's actually better that way. Part one is, uh, is on the website. You can, you can check that out at any time. Part two, this morning we take a look and we see about how God is not cold-hearted. Uh, God is not distant. God is not uncaring. Kind of lead us into that one. I want to share a story, a true story that happened uh, a little while back. And um, there's a group of youth leaders who decided to take the boys out on this, uh, on this backpacking trip. Okay, backpacking, remember, is different than camping. Because camping you go and you got one of those hopefully large trailers with like the bump out living room and like the flat screen and you got like the whole thing. That's my kind of, of camping with the fire pit out there and you get a good night's sleep and it has all the modern amenities like a bathroom. But back, right, backpacking is totally different. Backpacking is like 60 pounds on your back. Everything that you have is like strapped to you. You're carrying your clothes. You're carrying your food. You're carrying your tent. You're carrying your gear. Everything is on your person as you walk about through the wilderness. So the story goes, these guys, these youth leaders are like, man, this has been a great trip so far. It's the last night. The leaders are up late and they're talking. They're like, you know what just set this thing way over the top? You know what would just like bond these boys together as like this band of brothers It would turn these kids and boys into men? We should should in the middle of the night like like get up and like pack everything in that's ours and head back to the parking lot. And that's what they did. Four o'clock in the morning, the youth leaders like pack up all of their stuff. They head back to the parking lot and they just leave a note out that says, see you at the car. And they're like, "This will be great. They'll like, they'll learn how to like orienteer. They'll have to like cross the river that we crossed to get here. And they'll just like figure this whole thing out by themselves. By the time they meet us up at the car, man, they will just be thick like that. This is gonna be so great. We're we are geniuses. They get back to the car, and they begin waiting." and waiting, and waiting. They're waiting long enough for like logic to dawn on at least one of them. And he goes, what have we done, right? They are, we are in, we in no way prepared them for this. They didn't sign up for this. They don't know the way back. I can't, what have we done? On top of that, we're, we're the church here. We're supposed to save the lost, not lose the saved, right? <laughs> So like one of them is like, guys, we gotta go back. And so they all, they all go back, they find the kids, everybody's okay. None of those boys signed up for the trip next year, but that's, that's fine, everybody's okay. As I'm saying this, I'm looking over at Josh here and I realize that our youth went on a retreat last week and I assure you, all of the children made it, all of the children made it back. Just perfect, okay, good, good, we're all set. That did not happen here. But the reason why I share that story, uh, the reason why I, I think it's so relevant, so important to share that is because a lot of us at times in our life, when we feel particularly like we're in the wilderness, it kind of seems like, it kind of feels like God wrote that little note that said, see you at the car and just abandoned us. Then it kind of feels sometimes when we don't know whether we should go to college or which college we should go to whether we're trying to pick a major, whether we're trying to figure out who we're going to do life with, whether it's friends, whether it's picking out a significant other. Doesn't it feel sometimes like when the ground just drops below that we're just in the wilderness wandering around and God just sent us a note that said, see you at the car. Essentially, you're on your own. And at that time, it kind of seems like God, our God is. This guy's like, cold, rock, kind of unmoving sort of God that's even just a little chilled and icy to the touch, and that's who God is. And it seems like if God is the kind of God that writes a little note, see you at the car, it seems like our God is a God who doesn't really want a relationship with us, so why would I want a relationship with Him? A cold-hearted, uncaring kind of God. And I just want to point out That embedded within that thinking is a kind of logic that sometimes we do even without even thinking about it. It's like this hidden assumption that we have. And the assumption, the line of logic goes a little bit like this, is that if God cared, then he wouldn't let all of this, and you could fill fill it in with whatever your stuff is, if God cared, then he wouldn't allow all this bad stuff to happen to me. But because we see all of this bad stuff, it must be the result that God simply doesn't care. He's cold-hearted. He's distant. He's icy. He's uncaring. But if I want to point out that if that line is true, that if God cared, he wouldn't let this bad stuff happen to me, when we open up the Bible, we wouldn't see story after story of this pain, of this wilderness, of this suffering being inflicted upon people who are followers of him. But what we see in the Bible, in God's story, is a God who continually comes back again and again to the pain, to the wilderness. A God who does not shrink away from it, who does not minimize it away, who does not walk away, but engages it again and again that we see over and over that our God is a God who addresses this head on. And he does that in one of the most clearest ways. And what a lot of scholars and biblical authors, or biblical commentators, I should say, um, say is the very, very first book of the Bible that was ever written. It answers and it questions some of these, some of these Almost primitive questions that people have been asking since like the beginning of time. It's why is there all this wilderness? Why is there all this pain? Why does it hurt so bad? And where is God throughout that whole process? So, if you'd like to, in the Bibles underneath the chairs in front of you uh, or on the screen behind me, you can follow along. We're phone friendly in the Bible app as well. That's encouraged. Uh, We're going to move around a little bit this morning and we're going to go to Job. The book of Job, chapter 1, verse 1. And Job 1, 1 starts off this way. It says that in the land of Uz, there was a man whose name was Job. And this man, this man was blameless and upright. This man, he feared God and shunned evil. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Now, I want to point something out on the book of Job as we dig into this, is that the book of Job was written... From, the, from God's perspective, God's point of view. It's, it's written from an omniscient viewpoint. So when, when the story starts off with this guy was blameless and upright. He was the greatest man among all the people. That's not just like Job's wife's perspective of him okay? That's not like Job's kids. It's like, my dad is the strongest dad ever, right? That's not like Job's household or or business employee who's like, Job, you're the best, world's greatest boss. Got a little brown on my nose there, right? That's not, that's God's perspective that we're getting. No, no, no. Job was a good guy, blameless, even the greatest among all the people, Which is why it should come as such a surprise to us when Job is kicking back with his wife one evening, no doubt thinking about how sheerly blessed they are. If wealth is measured less in houses, cars, boats, cottages, and money, if if wealth is measured, if blessing is measured in, in cattle, in oxen, in sheep, in family, Job is firing on all cylinders. He lives a blessed life. And there's a knock on the door with a messenger that says, Job, the neighbors, the, the Sabaeans, they came, they, they raided one of our barns. They took all of the oxen, all of the donkeys. Job, they even took the plow equipment. I know that this is going to take years to earn back the financial loss That we've experienced today. I'm sorry, Job. And just as that messenger is finishing, there's another one. Job, there's a storm. We had all the sheep locked up in the pen safely at night, just like you wanted us to, just like we've done hundreds of times before. Lightning hit the barn, Job. It was a fire. I'm, I'm sorry, it's a total loss. Job, it's the, it's the Chaldeans. Job, three raiding parties. Job, it was organized. Like like we were defenseless to stop them. They must have been planning this thing for months. They, they, they came in from like out of nowhere. All of the camels, everything, gone. Looking at the three messengers, he goes, That's everything that I have. Everything is gone. There was also a tornado in the storm. And your brothers love to spend time with each other. And so the brothers and their wives were all together in one of the houses. The wind came, collapsed the walls, Job. I'm so sorry. And as Job is like reeling from this loss and and like the most excruciating pain that he can possibly imagine, he starts to grow ill. Sores begin to fester on his body, it's disgusting. They start peeling off his breath, is nasty. He's sitting in, in physical and spiritual existential pain right now. Wondering about it all. And wondering about everything when when his when his wife and his friends come and they want to give him some perspective on the thing. And they want to share, Job, maybe in this time you have to step back and consider a couple things. Job, his wife, starts off. She's the first one in 2, verse 9. Job, are you still maintaining your integrity? Here's, here's my advice. God is not interested in a relationship with you, obviously. So you must need to give up your relationship with God. Here's my advice from Job's wife. Curse God and die. Later on, his friend, Bildad comes along, Job 18, 5. And he says, in a thinly veiled bit of wisdom. The lamp of a wicked man, Job, is snuffed out. Do you feel snuffed out, Job? The flame of his fire, that's the wicked man, stops burning. Do you feel like your flame is no longer burning? You have nothing left to live for, Job? Maybe Maybe it's because of your wickedness. His friend Elphaz is much more direct. He uses no metaphors whatsoever. In 22 verse 5, he just simply looks at Job square in the eye and he says, Is not your wickedness great? Are not your sins endless? And this is the little bit of weeding that we got to do together, okay? Because this is going to sound a little bit like theology and detached from reality until you find yourself in the wilderness, until it seems like God has just written you a note that said, see you back at the car and left you on your own. Then the theology becomes real and you need to hear this. You need to hear that what the friends just did there is bad theology. Job had no way of knowing. Job, he didn't put it together, but it's a miracle that by faith he could stand to all of this and say, no, I don't, I don't know how to explain it. I don't get it all the time. But one thing that I do know is that I know that my Redeemer lives. And someday he'll set foot here and everything will make sense. But until then, I rest on my knowledge that I know my Redeemer lives. And that's the bit that we need to hear today. You need to hear, church, that if you put your hope in Christ, if you're a believer in him, that Christians today are not on the receiving end of God's punishment. Like, like we need to be clear on that because the cross of Christ settled that once and for all. That the cross of Christ bore the weight of all God's punishment. When it all came crashing down on him, Jesus paid it once and for all. It's done. Anybody that puts their hope in him will not be punished by God, if you believe that God is punishing a Christian you, then it diminishes the glory and the weight of the cross in the first place. So we have to know that God is not punishing Christians. And here, God is point, going out of His way to point out, no, "No, Job, he's a he's a righteous guy. He's a blameless guy. He has faith in His Redeemer." We we look at him, we he, we have him looking forward to the cross of Christ to say, "His sins, his sins are paid for." Your sins are paid for. This is not punishment that you're experiencing right now, but it does hurt. And so I want to give some perspective and when that comes, when it comes crashing down. And what I love about doing this from the Old Testament is because the New Testament has uh, has a lot more words. The New Testament is written in Greek, the Old Testament in Hebrew. The New Testament has a lot more words in Greek to describe punishment. They have, or uh, sorry, suffering. They have like this abstract words vocabulary like we do today to describe suffering kind of in in, in theory, in general, suffering. In the Old Testament, they were dealing with far fewer words and they didn't have an abstract word for suffering. They had just these like literal concrete words. So Job wasn't experiencing suffering. No, no. Job was experiencing poverty. Job was experiencing a brokenness of spirit. Job was experiencing potentially broken body. Like it was this very concrete, it's very tangible words that's used. The way that the Old Testament describes this pain, describes this suffering, is very heavy. In fact, the word that's most often used is the word that literally means the weight or the heaviness of evil resting on top of someone. And that's what Job's friends are doing is saying, no, no, the weight of your evil is crushing you right now. And, and we know better because anybody that puts our hope in Jesus, we know that that cross has settled that once and for all. But the pain, but the pain, it does still hurt. And so I wanna give you a couple perspectives to the first one is that is that there is a purpose to your pain like when you're experiencing the wilderness when it seems like god has just like allowed this thing to happen to his step deck you need to know that there is a purpose to your pain I think the book of uh, Jonah, it's super short, it's four chapters, you could read it in about 12 minutes, tells this perfectly well. That God says, hey Jonah, I want you to bring this word to these other group of people, your sworn enemies in Nineveh. And Jonah says, no way, I'm not doing it, I'm not going there, and he goes the opposite direction. And God, right, sends the storm, sends the fish, swallows them whole. You kind of get the sense from reading it. Like Jonah is, uh, he's going to be held in the belly of that fish until he wisens up and says yes to God. That's pain, but it's pain for a purpose. Eventually, he says yes to God. The fish spits him up on shore. Better that than the other way to exit a fish, right? He comes up on shore. He, he goes to Nineveh. The pain has a purpose. Sometimes it's used to correct a behavior, Like we see that throughout the Old Testament. Sometimes God tells these stories and we're like, say yes to God the first time. Like I get that now. Stay out or else you should stay out of the water. Uh, Other times God just very directly tells us. This is the book of Proverbs. Some of my favorite Proverbs, one of my favorites is, uh, is walk with the wise, become wise. Wisdom is contagious. Did you know that? Like, like you're around wise people, and it just you, it leaches out of them. If you're not a wise person, if you think you can follow other people, you'll, you'll, it'll leach from them. It's contagious onto you. But a companion of fools suffers harm. Wisdom is contagious, not foolishness. No, no, you don't you don't hang out with fools and become one. But when they inevitably self destruct and the shrapnel starts flying, you will get hurt. Pain will come, and a little pain now can spare you from a huge hardship and pain later. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come on you like a thief. It's a caution against sloth, uh, laziness. What kind of, of poverty? Every kind of poverty. Any gardeners in here? Anybody who likes to work in the dirt? You just put them up. Okay, we got like four. Awesome. Very urban church. That's cool. Uh, what do you? Rhetorical question. You don't have to answer. What do you have to do for a garden to be overcome with weeds? Nothing at all, right? You want to experience relational poverty? You want to see what it's like to have a shallow, vapid. Empty marriage or friendship for that matter. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of your hands for rest, and relational poverty will come on like a thief. You'll feel like you got robbed. What happened? Nothing. It hurts now. It hurts but God is sparing you from something much harder later on. Learn from the pain now. If there's a purpose to your pain, but church, listen, the other thing, there is a presence in your pain. If I'm being honest with you, this is the part of, of my Christian life that hurts the most. It just things that I hate the most is that the place that I experience God, and journeying with many of you, I know that it's similar for you too, that, that the place where I experience God the most is not on top of the mountain, is not when everything is going well, is not when we're firing on all cylinders, When not, not when I'm just ready sitting back, hanging out with my wife, and just thinking about how blessed my life is. The place that I experience God most deeply is in the valley is when it feels like I have nothing left and I realize that God is all I need in the first place see the thing that I hate about myself and my own walk with God and many of you I know can relate is that on top of the mountain I feel great but I don't feel God but God brings me low into the valley and says I'll meet you here he does. He meets us there. There's presence in the pain. A presence that you may never know apart from it. Ask where he is. Expect him to show up in the wilderness. There's presence in the pain. Sometimes we quote around here, uh, C.S. Lewis. He was a Christian philosopher, very accessible writings, and uh, very quotable because of that. Uh, we, We quote him a lot. He lived in the early 20th century. But honestly, like, I hadn't looked into his life very much to see where some of this comes from. So I was surprised to learn that. um, That he lost his mom at a very young age. And then his dad was eccentric and essentially abandoned him in his teenage years. He continued his education, not in Ireland where he was born, but in England, a place that took him a long time experience warmth and reception he was very much an outsider living as an Irishman in England not knowing like the ways of these people he continued on there he did not make friends in school not real well and in fact he only made one meaningful relationship in the early years of his life and it was with his bunkmate somebody that he served shoulder to shoulder with after they were both drafted into world war one he lost that friend on the battlefield He ended up taking care of his mom well into old age. A pact that they made in case the inevitable happened to one of them, they saw it coming. That's just part of C.S. Lewis' life. It, It took him a long time to develop these meaningful relationships, this community to invest in as an adult. Eventually, he found love later in life with an American writer named Joy, which seems a little on the nose, but God works that way sometimes. And then she too contracted a bone disease and died. He wrote his musings about that loss under a pseudonym, a name he just made up and published, A Grief Observed, The Cruel Irony, is that some of his acquaintance and former students would hand him copies of that book written under a different name, and said, hey, this might help you journey through. (laughs) Ouch. He knew pain. He knew loss. And he wrote, the thing about it is that God has a way of whispering in our pleasures. He speaks to our conscience but he shouts in our pain. It's a megaphone to rouse a deafening world, even our worlds. He will shout in your pain. There's presence in your pain. You wonder, where's God when it hurts? Is he cold? Is he, is he icy? Is he distant? Does God even care? A story one. John, as an eyewitness, writes it out. Jesus comes up. He comes to the home of a close friend of his that he had just lost, named Lazarus. By the time Jesus arrives onto the scene, his friend had already been dead for about four days, which is significant on a couple levels. Number one, that they believed that the soul left the body after three days. Number two, on a very pragmatic level, Decay and decomposition had already set into place. His eyes were sunken. His body was discolored. He was dead. They had rolled a stone in front of the tomb to keep what's dead in and what's living out. Jesus comes up to the home of that man, talks to his sister. Simple request, take me to the place where you've laid him. As an eyewitness, John doesn't share any words. Maybe there were none. Just footsteps. As Jesus and his dead friend's sister took him to that place. I imagine Jesus taking his hand on that tombstone and feeling how cold it was from the ground that it was dug out of. And we read these words that will live on. In John 11:35, where it says that Jesus wept. But sometimes we think of it like Jesus is reaching for a Kleenex. A solitude tear is dripping down his cheek. No, no, Jesus didn't weep. Jesus wept. Jesus screamed out in pain and horror at the loss of his friend Lazarus behind that tomb, behind that stone. It was loud enough, church, so that people nearby heard him yelling out, wailing out, as was the custom, and turned to look at what was going on by the tomb of the dead man. The people looked over and said, said, wasn't this Jesus? Wasn't this the miracle worker? Couldn't he have done something? But others hear his screaming, his weeping with his hand, still on the stone. They look over and they say, no, no, that's just how much he loved Lazarus that word that Jesus uses wept the greek word that John writes it's used in classical greek literature for the sound of an angry horse is snorting that Jesus isn't just upset he's not reaching for a kleenex Jesus Jesus is beaten Jesus is broken Jesus' heart is now bruised as he has his hand on that stone. He is not cold-hearted. God is not cold-hearted. No, church. God is broken-hearted. And he's weeping. And he's angry. He's angry at everything. He's angry at sickness. He is angry at illness. He is angry at depression. He is angry at fear. He is angry at poverty. He's angry at the brokenness that exists in this world. He is angry at death. And he is even angry at the grave itself. And he is going to do something about it. He will. He does. Right now, when you're in the wilderness and it seems like God sent you a note meets you at the car and you wonder, does God care? There's an empty grave that says he does. Remember that. Let's pray together. I invite you to stand up. Our gracious God in heaven, you care so much. So much. God, many of us are in this place right now where we need, to, we need to know that you're near. We need to know that the pain that we experience, that there's a purpose behind it, that there's a presence, that there's your presence behind it. God, remind us that you care. May we fix our eyes on the empty tomb that proves to us that every wrong will one day be right again. In your name we pray.